My name is Faye Koo. My pronouns are she, her. I am the featured artist for this year's Spring Break, brought to you by the team of Field Project, Chris and Jacob. Thank you very much. Welcome to Season 3 of Field Pod. I live in Brooklyn, but I'm originally from Taiwan. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this show with us. Uh, the show's called Axonometric Tongue. It um, is. But the overall theme of Spring Break, Jacob, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Um, basically, yeah. it's looking at renaissances. Well, you know all about this lunch, picnic, whatever theme. <laughs> um, master, so you could talk about it a little bit. Well, Naked Lunch is taken from the Burroughs book, um, which he was doing a lot of drugs and. Okay, who's Burroughs? Williams like, Burroughs is a is a beat poet like Jack Kerouac. Um, they did a lot of heroin, a lot a lot of different kinds of drugs, and then would uh, try to sort of get to the subconscious in that way. One of the things that they that uh, Williams Burroughs did in Naked Lunch was that he would uh, write things or take a book, a page out of a book, and cut it into four pieces, and then rearrange them and come up with new words that were combinations of old, you know, like half a word here, a half a word there, put it together. Now it means something new that it's never that's never been made before. You know, innovation about being sort of a little bit wild, a little bit surreal, a little bit getting into things in a sort of sideways way. That's what I know about Naked Lunch. <laughs> the theme of the of Spring Break seems to be sort of sideways at the Renaissance, all different types of Renaissance, kind of a rebirth and then uh, ways that we think about that rebirth and we we picked Faye um because Faye is looking at I mean and Faye I would love you to speak to this because <laughs> I don't want to just talk about your work but um one of the things that's really awesome about your work is the way that it a plays with perspective and then also pushes up against a lot of the uh like white neuro western assumptions about perspective um but also just ab about the way that figuration is done and can be done um, and even the way that like mediums are used and you're very playful about painting and drawing and it's definitely not in the realm of like, uh, like, um, sloppy figurative painting, right? It's like really tight and wonderful and like there's a lot of concentration and detail and I think that that's really wonderful and does push back against like the Renaissance and figuration that happened, I don't know, maybe like 30 years ago now, um, in contemporary art. So we would love to hear you talk a little bit about just how you got to the point of making the kind of work that you're making now. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit more in depth about perspective and axonometric tongue and all of the things that are happening in the show. But this is our, what, how many spring breaks have we done, Jacob? I don't know, eight, something like that. Five to eight, let's say that. <laughs> Probably more than five, maybe less than eight. This one's um, your favorite, of course. No, yeah. <laughs> no but really, exactly. um, it, we've had a great time exploring with artists and doing kind of solo exhibitions where you get to do like 
a penultimate vision of what you would want to do for a solo show. And maybe you could talk a little bit about just how you got into making the kind of work that you're making now. Sure. So I, I, um, so I, I'll, I'll try to touch upon the, the Renaissance idea because that's something that I was thinking a lot about just the past couple of years, which I'll get into, but um, mm-hmm. I a lot about culture. So I mentioned before about how I'm from Taiwan originally, but I moved to the States and was educated in the States, so I had a very Western education. But I think because my first language is Mandarin, even though I'm no longer as literate in Mandarin as I am in English, like English is by far my most fluent language. But I still think about, I still think that a lot of the way I think and the way I approach the world has been very much informed by my culture, even though I never knew the culture because I grew up in mostly neighborhoods that didn't have people who looked like me until I was in junior high. So that's sort of like the background. And so one of the things that's really interesting about the language, the Mandarin language, is that there's no tenses, there's no present tense, past tense, or every, I should say everything is in present tense. Whenever something happens, you have to, it's very, it's highly, highly contextual. So whenever you want to talk about like, um, I went, like, if you want to talk about going to the market, if you want to talk about you, if you went to the market 10 years ago or 10 days ago, or if you're planning on going to the market 10 year, ten days from now, it's still, I go, I go to market 10 years ago. I, te- I go to market 10 days ago. I go to market 10 days from now. There was this idea that like history in the future is all happening at once. And this sort of bumps right into the idea of like the Renaissance. And I, th- I was thinking a lot about Renaissance because about a couple of years ago, I was asked to teach foundational drawing, which is hilarious because I felt like, and I hope Pratt Institute's not listening to this, but I felt like I can <laughs> teach this because I, I didn't go to an art school for undergrad and everything I learned, I learned for myself and I learned only if I needed to do it for my own work and for my own work, I never had use perspectival drawing because in some in some ways it never made sense to me I didn't need to do that because my work is psychological um, things happen in a psychological space not a real setting and the part of me always sort of pushed back against this one-point perspective and I didn't quite understand why until I was sort of forced to teach it um, and then in teaching it I had to figure out for myself how it made sense um, conceptually so I was thinking about around the Renaissance time period when linear perspective was introduced to to Asia, and it wasn't like it wasn't adopted at all, but it was sort of like um, it was sort of like a, um, a gimmick, th- a gimmicky thing. Um, but it was never really adopted like wholeheartedly. Think about like Chinese scroll paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense because one point perspective sort of you have to be like one place and one time it sort of destroys the concept of the human as like a moving body in in relation to something else um and so if you're going through a scroll painting you have to be able to enter at any point in time mm-hmm. and so that's where i realized oh like isometric drawings or axonometric drawings which um are, have been used you know and other cultures use them other than the western culture it's because it they resemble how they resemble more so how the body experiences objects and structures in like as they go through a space of time the thing that really sticks out to me that i think is amazing that you've articulated as an artist but that i think is so important for like literally any person to think about is just the way that language shapes the way that we move through space you know and the way i mean it is so clear and obvious and yet looking at your work and hearing you speak about your work I have thought about it in a way that I've just never thought about it before. The way that you enter into, of course, 
you're a continuous being in Mandarin. It's like you are doing the thing and it's just the point in time that's changing. And it's not really the, the self or the figure that's changing in the same way. Whereas it's sort of the opposite in English, right? You are changing as time is changing. You might even change the like pronoun or way that you're speaking about yourself to make the time change, right? So I think that's a really interesting way of, of actually pulling apart through making drawings um, that you're kind of pulling apart these language differences and the ways that you can experience space differently through language, but also through visuals. Visual arts are a language, right? Um, <laughs> And the kind of like responsiveness and interconnectedness of verbal or oral language versus visual language and how deeply connected they are. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about, okay, so we asked you to do this show <laughs> um, and like how you thought about pulling it together um, and the works that are in there. But yeah, I mean, I just think that it's so wonderful to be able to articulate this visually. Do you want me to talk about the like when the work was made or um i mean a lot of the work is very new like a lot of the work was done like very very recently and um it's funny because i i was in um venice speaking of renaissance i was in venice and for almost two months in the summer before making the bulk of the work actually that's so right. uh, yeah so the so um i i didn't in some ways i didn't have time to think about how it influenced me but thinking about venice and i'm still trying to piece together like how it informed me because i hadn't spent that much time in such a, an amazing place and speaking of like moving through space and i don't want to get into too much because it's not quite related but moving through space in venice made me even more aware of like how i think about moving in space as someone mm -hmm. who speaks another language because it's so different from both like Mandarin and it's so different from I mean I know it's like very steeped in um like Western traditions Renaissance but Venetian Renaissance is very different from the rest of the Renaissance it's like its own thing you know like they're not as interested in two-point perspective one-point perspective either those are the things I've been still thinking about and whatnot yeah. but yeah there's a couple works that are field projects uh, aka Jacob and Chris you like saw and were interested, I think, th thematically. Um, and then there were some other works I was working on, like there were two works that were in progress that weren't finished when I left. And then the rest was like made, <laughs> like after I came back. So, <laughs> and so obviously they're returning to the theme, like the jade armor suit, um, you can mm -hmm. say it's the counterpart to the Western Renaissance because the Tang Dynasty, um, if you not a quite exactly like, you know, you can think about the year to year equivalents, but you can think about like, um, um, like sort of like the height of West, I don't want to say height, but you know, like if you think about like classical, traditional, like high point, whatever you think of a certain civilization, I think of the Tang dynasty. Oh, okay. And, uh, can you tell us about the, the Jade suits and what they are and what they sort of mean to you? Um, the jade suits, um, they're definitely, I was th definitely thinking about them as the Renaissance because they're armor, but what the jade suits are is that originally they were um, burial shrouds made of jade, um, but they've sort of lost that connotation because it's something that I started playing with and when I put, so when I put on, um, when I create my, my characters, um, it's really hard to create, like it's impossible to make a universal character. So when I first started making this work, I was very interested in trying to create a subjective reality, like looking out of like, not my eyeballs, but like 
an I, like capital I, like the I in a dream or whatnot. But you can't do that if you're a figurative artist like me, because you have to give them, they have to look like something, right? They have Mm -hmm. to, you have to choose what color hair, how long the hair, how long the hair will denote, you know, sex perhaps, or race or what, you know, like it took me like a long time to realize, I didn't know when I started making this work, they're like, oh, all your faces are Asian. Like they are, you know, I was just making them like kinesthetically. So um, I always think about like costuming, like how to give my characters clothing that resonate and have like meaning, but doesn't necessarily close them in. But the jade suit I love because they have this historical reference, but they also play into the idea of armor. But then they become, like, for me, they be, they do become kind of like armor instead of, like, death shrouds. And, again, just something, like, I'm playing with that doesn't necessarily mean anything directly, but does touch upon, like, different art historical, like, references. Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting, too, because, I mean, I feel like, mortuary space has always been a space of fantasy right and you're talking about how these works are like deeply psychological um and they're a place for you to explore and so using this kind of jade suit as a jumping off point allows you to be playful with a history that's already imagining you know the the question of like what happens to you after you die that people have grappled with forever has been this space of like imagination um and trying to like imagine what happens and also like a different space, right? Like imagining alternative spaces. Um, So it makes tons of sense to me that you would gravitate toward something like that, right? Something that has this kind of malleability. Um, And they're also just beautiful. Like the material itself is so beautiful and painting it, you've painted it in lots of different ways too in these works. Yeah. Um, I do play with different materials and I mean, I work on paper mostly, but I, I don't, restrict myself limit myself to drawing material I do all sorts of things and I draw upon like art like artisan um, techniques as well as like fine arts techniques like I've like gilded on paper which is crazy you know (laughs) like I've done all sorts of things you're not supposed to probably oops sorry go ahead Jacob oh I was just gonna say one of the things that I really specifically attracted me to one of the works was the threads that you're sewing through the paper Mm. that are holding the jade suit together that that just for me, that just, that's that, whatever. That's like a golden moment always for me when I see stuff like that. <laughs> you, you know, you know what it is? It, I think about tactility a lot. And I've been thinking about that a, just a lot in general since I started teaching, since I was started teaching like in earnest. Um, but you know what, when I was a, when I was a kid, I used to make my own paper dolls. You know, like I used to make like a whole family of paper dolls. They were all women actually. So I don't know if they were a family, but there were like seven women um, and they, I gave them like all different clothes. I made all the clothes for the paper dolls, but I also made like a house for them that was three dimensional. And I knew like, even as a kid, there was something kind of like, not like there's something off about it, but it didn't bother me. Cause like they couldn't sit in their chair. You know, they could lie <laughs> in the bed, but they couldn't sit in the chair cause the chair was like three dimensional. Uh-huh. But I, I think about like, for some reason as a kid, you 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 know that they're they're two dimensional. You understand that, but it's okay that they have a three dimensional space. And I think there is something about like that fluidity of acceptance that like I try to hold on to in the work. Like I know that's a two D. Like you don't need to sew together those pieces, but there's always like a part of me that goes, huh? That's just like when I was seven years old, and I really I really like that because I feel that that's also universal. 
Yeah, and it's like different ways of thinking through the same problem, right? Well, it's kind of like, it's like, um, you know, like when people draw and, and the work goes off the paper, people talk about how the world extends beyond, but this is just extending in the Z axis. You know, it's like the world is extending towards out to the viewer. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I just ask two practical questions, which are, um, when did you start sewing the works and when, how long ago did you start using the jade suit imagery? Oh, um, the jade suit is relatively recently. I, th I think it was around 20, oh, no, it's earlier. Maybe like 2018, 20, 2017. I don't know, but it started being like a series, like it's more like a series now because I'm accumulating all these like jade suited, you know, women. The you know, I don't remember when I first started sewing things. I can't remember. I think it's, I was, I'm pretty experimental. I would did these, um, I'd, I don't think they're, they might be on my website, but I started doing these like um, these boxes with these figures that are cut out. And I had some of these yeah. cut out figures with like th with broken arms or like broken midriffs that were sewn together, but very loosely. So there's a gap. Um, those are pretty early, but I never really showed them. So I never had anyone like, oh, this is interesting and sort of forgot about it. And then just sort of... Um, started up again more recently. There was a trip I took to the Taiwan uh, National Palace Museum. I was just looking at these like silk embroidered like works were so gorgeous. I'm like, oh, that, maybe that's so nice. And like, wait, why can't I do that? I mean, I can't do that, but <laughs> like, and I've seen other, you know, I've known of other, other artists who've done that. It's just like, I never want to do that because they did that. But then um, when I started sewing, it just made sense because the jade suits needed to be put together. They needed to, and, you know, and I was like, okay, how else can they do? I had drawn the gold chains together, and then I was like, why don't we just sew red thread together? That would look, that would just look great. It was just a very practical, um, just very practical approach. And then later on, I'm like, oh, but I've been doing this in the past, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love those. Um, and the sewing really stood out to me, too, Jacob. And I like that you've let it be kind of looser in some of them, too. Um, I think the horse piece, mm -hmm. what is the title of that piece? I'm sorry. Oh, the, uh, there's two horses, the Jade Horse and uh, um, Comes Undone and Jade Horse and Rider. Yes, the one that comes undone. Yeah. I think is the one that's really loose. Um, yeah. And there's something like so wonderful about it. It's like doing its functional thing, but then it's also kind of becoming ornament in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even more, right? Yeah. By being kind of loose. There's also the one, um, I, I think it's a Escape Artist 2, Wounded Warrior, where the red thread coming loose starts becoming a metaphor for blood, mm -hmm. because they're like pouring out, and um, I, I love films, I love watching films, I love stealing from films, I steal more from films than I do from looking at art, although I, I steal a lot, I steal from everyone and everything. But I think... Um, Julie Taymor's um, um, Titus is it Titus? I can't remember now. I, yeah, Titus is was like a was one of those really great movies I saw like years ago. That just it was a gift that keeps on giving because even now every so often, it's not stealing from it directly, but I'll do that. I'm like, oh, this is very similar to when Julie Taymor did this in this film, and I and I think I don't know if that would have been seated. I think it must have seated in my brain even back then. Is that the one with Anthony Hopkins? Yep, the okay. one that's the really bloody one with Shakespeare. It's great. It's so great because it's so much like it's out of control. It's, out it's of so control. much visual ideas. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's really wild. 
Yeah, and my stupid brain immediately went to the, like, white Western Artemisia gentileschi and the, like, blood coming out of, <laughs> who is it, Holofernes? Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> thing where Judith is, like, cutting the head off. Right, right. Yes. No, I like, I, like, <laughs> I like looking at films better because yeah. it, there's more translation you need to do. Like, how do I do that equivalent? Because it's not the same media. Yes. You know, I think about, I think about, um, I think about Hitchcock all the time. I think about like, and horror movies, except I'm actually too afraid to look at scary movies, but I, <laughs> horror movies are amazing because they really, they know how to do things like on the cheap and very like out of the box. Like they're just really um, original creative people mm-hmm. in horror movies because they have to make it scary. And so it's like, how do you make something scary when you've, you know, yeah. so, um, if I had more of a stomach for it, I'd actually watch more horror films. <laughs> um, you just like skip through to the gore? No, like, <laughs> no. You know, I I like I love film, so um, I'm I don't I'm not a film snob. I, I don't mean to be a snob, but I I don't like to waste time. Like whenever I want to watch or read anything, I want a transcendent experience. So I don't have time for anything that's not going to be potentially transcendent. Um, so I'll watch any good horror movie. I'll just like watch it mostly with my eyes covered, like, ah, you know, or I'll overhear people talk about things and then I can sort of like deconstruct based on like other people's like descriptions of what happened. I just soldier through it and just have nightmares and have to like ask my husband to walk it to like accompany me to the bathroom in the middle of the night if I have to leave. <laughs> like, it's really like terrifying. <laughs> Well, that we're sort of in a golden age of horror right now, so um, I'm sure Chris and I have a lot of suggestions for you in that in that. Oh realm. dear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I was gonna say as, as also films. Um, I was thinking about uh, Kurosawa's Ron. I uh, love Kurosawa. Yes. And that's also a re- retelling of um, Shakespeare's. Lear. Yes, King Lear. Larry. Yeah. Yes. But ju- but just the arrows and like that one scene of him just being um, it's I think it's at the very end, he's he's got this the the back of the castles behind him and he's he's pushed up against there and he starts to walk walk left and there's like a hundred arrows come and he starts to walk mm. right and another hundred arrows and it's just it just reminded me of your fallen warrior too in the jade suit with all the arrows and kind of bending back and yeah. this final. So- yeah, there's arrow. Yeah, arrows. Yeah, there's there's a lot of arrows actually, and I don't know why. There's lots of arrows in my work. <laughs> I think it's because it's you know I'm a drawer at heart. They're lines. They're a way to like I don't want to use color to fill a space. I use lines to fill up the space. So yeah, and they're a really good shorthand for telling narrative too in drawing. Instead of using a human figure, they just imply action and movement, like, so quickly. I think that's, like, really exciting and fun about them. But they're not just, like, stick figure arrows, right? They're, like, fully No, they ripped. have, they have, yeah, no matter how skinny, they always have to have some design elements mm-hmm. or something, yes. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of uh, different types of focuses in each one of the drawings. And one of them is this very, very, very close pattern that you'll mm-hmm. that you can really get into could be something on someone's clothing i'm thinking about the the person on the horse like horse right. oh yeah that's from um that's inspired by bronzino and which speaking of the renaissance or actually he's really mannerist right so it's post yeah. but so, i can't remember which one it is it's one of the black clad nobles <laughs> i can't uh-huh. remember if it's at the frick or at the met or if it's just one that i've seen somewhere else but 
there's these fantastic clothing where there's like little holes in the double so you can see the material underneath and they're like little mouths so i mean like i will do that again because i haven't gotten it the way i like but on that one there's like little wounds mm. you know they're almost uh -huh. like little like wounds on the clothes so there's a little red on the inside so i, I think about those things yeah, I mean, but I think about I'm when I'm viewing that I'm thinking about the different speed that's happening. So you have no drawing, like nothing. You have done nothing to the to the paper, and then there's um, this like extreme focus on like the 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 top, and then mm -hmm. you know like there's and then there's different other speeds of focus as well throughout there. Like and I mean just realistically the amount of time that it takes you to do that small amount of drawing, but also just the way that I'm. I mean, the way that I'm experiencing it is that way, too, is it's like this overall picture and then it sort of like collapses in on itself and becomes more and more time consuming. Well, it's, it's very filmic. Like I think about I think about films a lot. So I think about how films direct your eyes. But, you know, and or if you think about like scroll paintings, mm -hmm. vertical or horizontal, like I think about how to direct the viewer's eyes around and um and especially when I have sort of like maybe challenging subject matter, how to draw the viewer in before they get really repulsed by what's happening, like when they realize what's happening in the actual narrative. So mm. I do, I do play with that. Well, tell us about a narrative that you, that would repulse somebody. I mean, I think most of the ones I have in the show are not are not that scary. But I mean, even like the ones with the thread, like. There's like the like the wounded warrior, you know, like you see this person's got like wearing it's very striking because, you know, this person is in the suit. You look closer and there's like missing thread and then the thread you, you start thinking like, is blood. So you're like, oh, that's kind of gross. But it's not I mean, that one's not. So I think the ones I did earlier in like that my earlier works tend to be more distressing. Like I would hide things like like a little girl whose mouth had been peeled, had been like torn off, you know, like things like that. Uh -huh. um, I don't really do that anymore. Maybe I should do more of that, but. Um, <laughs> well, I was yeah. also thinking about um, the one with the woman who's laying back uh, and the jade, there's like a jade person on top of her. Uh, as you oh, can. Oh yeah, yeah. It's based on a painting, right? It's based on a, on that like nightmare painting. Yeah, Fuseli, yes. uh, Fuseli, Henry Fuseli's, um, definitely was thinking about that, was definitely thinking about it, um, but there's no horse in the center, you know, there's no <laughs> other, yes. you know, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I love art history, like, I love all, our, all histories, I mean, my family, we, we carried our culture within ourselves to, like, Texas and Oklahoma and Maryland, you know, and, like, there was no, like, visual counterpart, like, my, like, I'm fascinated by every culture and, and to find out what they look like is amazing because I grew up without the visual counterparts to any of these stories, like whether Western, which I was very confused about because I had no idea what, what Western culture, like who is Santa Claus? Is he related to Jesus? I don't understand. You know, and no one, like my parents couldn't explain to me and no one could explain what my parents meant by stuff. So, but I love how like in material culture, you have the entire like concepts like carried down through the century. So I, I love that. And I, I try to do that in my own work. Like, I try to like touch upon these ideas and you may not know what they are. They're not, you know, didactic, but I think about these things and I try to make references to it. And, if, you know, and I think if you can pick them, you know, pick them out, I think that's awesome. Yeah. It's totally like, you know, um, the nightmare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's another layer for, for you to play with and for the viewer to kind of experience and, or, um, or discover. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally. 
Well, what about the the throne? So that one was okay. That one was a while back. So um, I think that was done soon after my first trip to Italy. Um, I can't remember what year that was. I think it must have been around the same time because going to Rome. Oh my God! Like I'd seen this work, you know, in textbooks. I'd seen them in slides, but you know, it really made you want to go back and kick all your professors in the shins. Like, how dare you not make me? Like, you should have told. You should have like bought me a plane ticket to Rome, and that would have been enough. But I just <laughs> love the work so much. I just couldn't help but just like it was like three years worth of like love letters to like you know European art um, and I wanted to make like religious tableaus um, I mean there was a lot of Gustave Moreau like I love Gustave Moreau I love his work you know like Jupiter and Semele I was very much thinking about that as well but I but it, mostly I was just like oh my god I love this this is mine too because the western the western world is also my heritage because I have a western education I was brought up in the west so, you know, just as much as I borrow from East Asian traditions, I can take from this, too. So it was my way of sort of trying to synthesize. Not to say I didn't have, like, permission to. I just didn't feel like it was mine. But, you know, it's just like, I want it. It's mine. It was just like that feeling. Like, I want it. It's mine. It's mine. So it's very much out of that sort of feeling of, like, oh, my God, this is so incredible. It's amazing how traveling and being in new spaces affects your work so much. And you were just in Venice, and we were talking on a different day about just like like you can be physically affected by a space that is so like radically different from how you're normally moving through the world and I was also thinking about how costume does that too right so like if you were actually wearing one of these jade costumes it would change the way that you moved and I like watching and kind of imagining your drawings and the movements and the ways like there's a kind of entirely jade costume covered figure crouching on top as if they're like the demon from a dream on top of another figure. And just like thinking about ways that your work has moved and changed in response to going to new spaces and encountering new works, it almost feels like going to Venice now is a return to kind of rethinking about falling in love with European art in Rome, right, or something, like, yeah. return yeah. to the Renaissance. I mean, the thing with travel is also, like, I, and I was teaching while I was in Venice, and I had three students who were from Asia, and it was really wonderful because I got to point out certain things about culture that we shared that they didn't notice before and they didn't think about, not even, like, while they were in the U.S., um, in some ways, traveling also brings you back to who you are. It's like sort of like a like you know the Guggenheim in New York. Every time you go around, you're in a different position, but you see the same view, but from a slightly different angle, and you've you've just learned a little bit more, you know. And so the you know I think I think about the fact that you know how I deal with like space and having um, a space that happens at all the time, the continuous present. But being in Venice, you don't know if it's going to be a dead end or not. The place is completely irrational, and I have no idea. Eventually, like the way I understand things is by tying them into something else I understood before, and that gives it visual form. Makes it sound very solipsistic. I don't mean to be, but you know that's like the way like I learn, and I try to like that's how I, I just grapple these. I put these things two together, and then I find my own way to think about that. So I don't know how that's going to turn out. But I think that's going to. I think it's. I think it's probably two years from now. I'll be like, oh my gosh, this is what this was about. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah, it's cities. Uh, I mean, exactly what you're saying. 
Um, the, I had the same experience in, I think it was Tokyo and Kyoto, just being like, I do not understand the way that this, this works. Like, New York is a grid. <laughs> made, they make it so simple for us. Um, where are these, these other cities, these ancient cities that are based on trails that then turn into, like, bigger trails that then turn into roads that then turn into paved roads. You know, it's, it's just fascinating. It's yeah, like Venice is even crazier because it's not, it's like, this grew out of the water. And then all of a sudden, like, I bought that land. I'm just going to build a bridge, like, uh, here. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like, it makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> Unless you're in a boat, maybe. But even, no, no, no. None of, none of it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, uh, also, I think similar to Chris, Chris just went on a pilgrimage and was, like, following a, an ancient trail, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing that stood out to me about that is how much you notice changes in terrain when you're moving. But I I was also just thinking about how Venice, like many cities, is such a museumified medieval space, you know, like it's been purposefully left in a state of like, this is the historical way that this city was, Um, which means that it's against this kind of like house-manified grid city with like this kind of organized structure. Like New York has a grid. It's super easy. We just walk around the squares of it. And it's amazing how much that affects you, right? But it also is full of asphalt and cement. And that affects your body, too. (laughs) You know, I just got back from a run and I was like, wow, it's so painful to be (laughs) running in New York City, you know, versus like hiking, you know, 18 miles a day on a pilgrimage trail on dirt totally different you know um and it affects your body in different ways so that's almost another element of costume too um is also the terrain and the way that that impacts the kind of costuming that people wear and things like that but it's all connected to ideas around cultural heritage i think too yeah because they're all about either preservation or production or growth or are we going to you know say there's a historic district here and who gets to have a historic district and all of those kind of questions around urban design and development. This, I'm sorry. Well, that, well that, <laughs> that could definitely take us to the that desert piece that's in yes, the show. Yes. Can you talk about that, like that, that piece and all of the, like where that piece came from? I mean, that, that has a space that's... The glory in the desert? Yeah. It's I'm set... trying to remember, because that, that one is, that's one of the older works in here, so I'm trying to remember wh- who I was and where, where I was, so, <laughs> you know, so, you know what, I think, uh, so I did a lot of residencies at one point, and I didn't know this, so I love cities, I'm a city person, you know, I love cities, when I go on vacation, I want to go to a city, but I found out I also love the desert, so when I'm done with people and whatever, I'm going to the desert and die. You know, I'm going to spend my last days there. I know that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I just, I loved it. So there's a lot of that also, like, wanting to deal with, like, the desert in some way, just because, and also I realized I like deserts. Like, I don't, I don't care for the woods. I know that sounds pe- terrible because, you know, people love trees. But, like, you know, as a drawer, I like graph, I have a graphic sensibility. I don't like things being too crowded. And the desert is like a drawing. It's like a very sparse drawing, you know? And I'm like, oh, I feel very comfortable and at home here. And in the woods, I'm terrified. You know, I'm like, oh my God, I can't see if there's someone after me. If I scream, no one can hear me. I, <laughs> but I did crowd that one piece a lot. Like I just threw everything in. I think it was just, um, 
I was, there was just a lot of things I was looking at. There's a Chinese photographer named uh, Ren Huang, whose work I loved. It's, uh, he, he committed suicide a few years ago. It's very sad. I don't think he's well known. I think he, he's like a fine artist slash commercial artist. I think a lot of his work ended up being like, you know, used for commercial photography and whatnot. But it's very like subversive, se like sexually and whatnot. So I w there's a, there's a couple of that sort of things snuck in there and, so it's a huge mishmash of just like, I think I was thinking about like a religious experience, like what would be an overwhelming, like visual, sensorial thing? And like, ta-da, yeah. here, I just threw everything on here. I think um, having growing up next to the desert and like, and also I guess in Christianity and the way that the desert's used a lot in, in uh, the Bible is that's a place of religious experience when you're on the edge of death. Or something like mm -hmm. that and yeah. I sort of I felt like that that's what was happening there too like this like goddess and like you know there's different like sexes that are kind of mixed together and there's like bodies being sort of furniture <laughs> maybe or yeah. or being yeah. like debased or do you remember the uh the, M the MTA has that poetry co that poetry uh -huh. Uh -huh. which I love like now I can't remember his name oh Stanley Kunitz had a poem that I, I fell in love with. You know, it's um, Old Crack Tune. My name is Solomon Levi. The desert is my home. Let me see if I can remember. The desert is my home. My mother's breast was thorny. My fa father, I had none. Those stones whispered to me, be separate. The sand said, be strong. I'm totally bastardizing. I apologize. <laughs> um, a, a dance along for the, uh, along the edge of the road is, is how it ends. It's really beautiful poem. But I think about the desert and I think about whatever it represents to me, it has this feeling of like this grim joy of surviving in a place that's so harsh. And I apologize, that was the car. I don't know if you heard that like top car, but, but there, there's something about the desert. I, I mean, I mean, if you drop me to the desert, I'll probably die within a day because I have no survival skills, <laughs> but there's something I understand about that metaphorical space that I feel very drawn to and visually I feel very drawn to and it's very much combined with um, where I feel at home emotionally somehow about how I feel about the world. So I have a couple pieces that are that take place in so-called deserts. Wow. So giant empty spaces with no... <laughs> <laughs> that is my internal reality. Sorry, I know I sound very bleak. I'm a very fun person, I promise. <laughs> Actually, there's, but also the desert is, um, it opens itself. Once you are there for a long time, you start to see animals and the way that the animals live in the desert and the different ways, you know, some animals are only nocturnal and like, mm -hmm. there's, there's the resourcefulness. Also, mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's. It's not. It's not really a wasteland. It's actually filled, no, it's no, filled no. with no, no, no. But I like yeah. the sparseness. The sparseness of it. So yeah. it's. Then I can see everything. If you're in the woods, everything is going on at the same time. How can you see what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> or the rainforest. I, mean. <laughs> I like that you're like constantly looking over your shoulder. <laughs> I know it's a very paranoid place to be. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing the show with us. It's really wonderful to get to talk to you about the work. I'm sure we're going to talk more, and you're probably going to be on another podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I love good conversations. I'm sorry I'm doing – I'd love to hear from you guys more. So it's more I, I hope I didn't dominate it. No, it's much. fine. This is about, no, it's it's about you. It's great. It's so. great. Um, yeah. I hope it was a good experience installing. It's always crazy. It was the most fun we could have without alcohol. No. I agree. Well, <laughs> oh, wait, you guys weren't drinking? Huh. All right. <laughs> no, all right.
<laughs> so yeah i think we should definitely do a part two afterwards. yeah <laughs> a wrap so. up. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for both the opportunity to show at Spring Break and to be working with you guys. You guys are awesome. You've been listening to Field Pod, a Field Projects podcast. Join us next week as Jacob Rhodes and myself, Chris Racanello, discuss the latest shows and deliver interviews with other creatives and deliver part two of this podcast with Faye. See you next time. Maybe a QR code. Um, uh, we got those books there already, so that's great. We should make a spreadsheet, Chris, for uh, collectors' names, uh, and then we need to do an e-blast. Uh, yeah. So I can work on a lot of that tonight. So basically, Faye, no, I don't think that you and I need to. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. All right, okay. Mostly Jacob and I stuff. All right, <laughs> okay, great, thanks. Right. Well, thank Why don't you we again. call later today when you have time? Yeah.